break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 21st of April, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show. We're going to be talking a little bit about the intersections of mass incarceration and Earth Day celebrations. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about even more bailouts and what it means or should mean in terms of who really owns all these big banks. As the Federal Reserve continues to slowly release information into the variety of loan programs it rolled out just before and during the pandemic, evidence is growing that most of these programs are really a cover for the fact that, allegedly designed to save the economy, most of them end up really being just corporate welfare schemes, propping up a totally unsustainable business model that has been deemed, quote unquote, too big to fail. The most recent revelations, reported on first by watchdog journalist Wall Street on Parade, concern the Money Market Mutual Fund Liquidity Facility, MMLF, is the acronym. They reveal that 72% of total loans in the facility went to just six banks for terms longer than what the Fed's legal mandate seems to allow. So let's break this down and talk about what it means about the big banks that are at the heart of the economy. Money market funds are basically like a type of bank account. They are advertised to middle-class people with some money to invest as a way to invest in low-risk, short-term assets. This means that it's relatively safe, like a bank account, but it earns money on your deposits at a much more significant rate. And since the investments are short-term, it's easy to cash out. So in other words, it's a place to park your money where you can earn a little extra, but that it's easy to tap for your everyday cash needs. Many large investors park huge sums in money market funds for short periods for basically the same reason. You can park your idle cash there, earn something on it, and figure out what else you want to invest in to potentially earn significantly more. Money market funds play a big role in the broader economy. Since they are more or less just one big pot of cash, big-time investors like hedge funds and others who hold assets that are hard to liquidate borrow money from money market funds to get the cash for their day-to-day transactions and trades. So in a situation like the beginning of the pandemic, when the economy is essentially in free fall, money market funds face a pretty obvious problem. Everyone wants to cash out all at once. And since money market funds, same as your bank, by the way, aren't holding all the money, but lending it out, at any given time, they may not actually have your money available to give back. So the Fed facility was designed to allow financial institutions to borrow to make sure that they could indeed pay out when requested. Now, here is where the Fed's rules come in. Technically, Fed loans are supposed to be open to a wide range of players and short term. However, as previously mentioned, of the $116.8 billion shelled out in March and April of 2020, 72% went to just six banks. And quite a few of the loans stretched out into 2021, so over a year. 
So, doesn't really seem that broad-based or that short-term, really. So why is this a problem? Well, first off, the very fact that the entity essentially tasked with running the entire U.S. economy may be breaking its own rules and just handing out cash based on its own opaque criteria is a problem in and of itself, especially when there may be real conflicts of interest. BlackRock, for instance, on just one day in March, borrowed $1.4 billion from the facility. BlackRock also has several no-bid deals with the Fed to manage some of the Fed's massive accounts. And also, BlackRock manages $25 million of Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's personal money. So it begs the question, did these six banks really need 72% of this money? Or is there a little you-scratch-my-back-I-scratch-yours going on at the Fed? The second issue, and really the deeper one, is why do we have to keep constantly bailing out these banks? Since this is a pandemic loan facility, the temptation would be to look at this as just a one-off. But context is important. In addition to what we're talking about here, there was the $9 trillion pumped into the repo loan market to prop that up in the fall of 2019, before the pandemic. There was the cumulative $29 trillion spent on bailouts after the 2008 crash. There was the flooding of cheap loans into the market by the Fed to cover for the bursting of the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s. In addition to that, there was the 1998 bailout of long-term capital management that couldn't stay afloat despite having two Nobel Prize-winning economists on the board. And of course, we can't forget about the bailout of the savings and loan industry in the late 80s. I mean, every time we turn around just about, it seems like we're bailing out the banks. So why is it that they're taking huge sums of our money, but we don't own them? Why should we continually embrace a model where the major financial companies take outrageous risks and every few years ruin tens of millions of lives because of their appetite for destruction? If these institutions are so crucial to the functioning of the economy, so much so that trillions of our dollars are used to subsidize it, then why aren't they public under democratic small d control? Not just so we can control the risk, but also that their profits can be used for things that actually improve our lives, not private jets, penthouses, and yachts. The evidence is as clear as day when you look at the string of bailouts over the past several decades. The only sustainable way to move forward that improves our lives and protects our financial realities is to nationalize the banks. If they're too big to fail, they should be too big to be owned by just a handful of greedy oligarchs. <laughs> Earth Day is this week, which makes it as good a time as any to remind you how prisons in the United States in more ways than one are toxic environmental hazards and that incarcerated people are subject to all sorts of environmental exposures that clearly make a mockery of the constitutional right we all have to an environment free of toxic substances, not to mention basic morality. As the Prison Policy Initiative notes, quote, one-third, 32% of state and federal prisons are located within three miles of federal Superfund sites, the most serious contaminated places requiring extensive cleanup. Research warns against living, working, or going to school near Superfund sites, as this proximity is linked to lower life expectancy and a litany of terrible illnesses, end quote. As an example, they note that, quote, in western Pennsylvania, for example, a state prison located on top of a coal waste deposit has done permanent damage, causing skin rashes, sores, cysts, gastrointestinal problems, and cancer, with symptoms often appearing soon after arrival. A scathing report from 2014 exposed these patterns of illness and neglect, but the prison, SCI Fayette, remains open, end quote. Also worth noting here that the award-winning journalist and political prisoner Mamiya Abu-Jamal, who is falsely imprisoned in Pennsylvania, helped reveal some of this information. 
The Prison Policy Initiative goes on to note that, quote, the Rikers jail complex in New York City is cited squarely on a landfill, making it a particularly cruel metaphor. The leaching of toxic fumes from poorly decomposing trash has caused anguish to the point where correctional officers have sued the city, end quote. And the initiative also details cases exposed in the recent past that further reveal these issues, specifically how prison water supplies are also often poisonous. They note that in state prisons in Massachusetts, incarcerated people for many years have had to fear for their health because their water has been, quote, dark in color, bad smelling and clogging filters with sediment for years. And testing in one of those prisons showed dangerous levels of magnese, which can lead to neurological disorders. The initiative also notes that there is a Texas facility that was providing water with elevated levels of arsenic for 10 years before the courts got involved and that an Arizona prison's water system had foul-smelling water that was causing rashes that, when tested, tested positive for a quote-unquote petroleum product. And that's just scratching the surface there of issues with prison water. The Prison Policy Initiative also notes that in the past several years, there have been outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease, a potentially fatal type of pneumonia, in California, New York, and Illinois prisons. In the Illinois case, state officials admitted that they only did very limited testing, despite the well-known risk of Legionnaire's in, quote, large and complex water systems and years of water issues at Illinois state prisons. In fact, at one state prison, which had a positive Legionnaire's case earlier this year, there were people who got Legionnaire's in 2015. In the 1990s, there was radium, a cancer-causing chemical in the water at that same prison. And as the news site The Appeal notes, quote, the prison distributed bottled water to staff free of charge, but not to prisoners. A prisoner filed suit because he could not afford to buy water at the commissary and lost. Radium is related to the chemical of radon, which is a gas. You may have heard of radon, which causes cancer, and which in the 70s and 80s, the U.S. government waged a huge campaign to eliminate wherever it was found. In 2018, a court in Connecticut found that, quote, a Connecticut prison was knowingly and recklessly exposing its incarcerated population to alarming levels of radon. And that court found, by the way, that this is a violation of the constitutional rights of those prisoners. When we're talking about climate change vis-a-vis -vis the environment, one major factor, of course, is the rise of heat waves, which are getting hotter and longer. The Prison Policy Initiative also looked at this question in 2019, finding that in 13 of the hottest states in the country, there was no universal AC in state prisons, which in their words, quote, creates unsafe, even lethal conditions. Prolonged exposure to extreme heat can cause dehydration and heat stroke, both of which can be fatal. It can also affect people's kidneys, liver, heart, brain, and lungs, which can lead to renal failure, heart attack, and stroke. They go on to note that many people in prison are especially susceptible to heat-related illnesses as they have certain health conditions or medications that make them especially vulnerable to the heat. End quote. There are many reasons to critique America's system of mass incarceration, and most of them alone are reasons to end it, but you really can't just boil it down to just one thing. It's the cumulative effect. But without a doubt, the fact that prisons tend to be toxic wastelands that forcibly subject their inhabitants to the rigors of the front lines of climate change feels like something that should be added to the long list of reasons why mass incarceration is not working for any of us, inside or out. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. 
And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah.